Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms and also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Afri. Afri is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Ali, to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Mustafa, for such a wonderful invitation. I am really honored and excited to have such a dialogue with a distinguished person like you. It's a big pleasure for me, actually. Like when I see you, uh, I get so much inspiration from you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this appreciation. Uh, I think we have to be really grateful for these social media platforms. It, uh, to me, it, uh, although some people might consider it like waste of time or people are sort of copying their opinions and stuff like that, but I th- still think that uh, there are a lot of positive, positive aspects about social media, particularly the notion of uh, giving us the opportunity to know good people and to read uh, good interventions and inspire people, actually. So I'm really grateful and thank you for that. Same, likewise for me as well. So how how are you doing? Like, where are you now? In which city? I am based in uh, Doha, Qatar for the last uh, 13 years. Uh, before that, I was in Bahrain also for five years. But I am originally from Cairo, Egypt. And we're going to talk more about like your story. But tell me first, how is the weather now? Because I see like here in Europe, like everything is burning up. Yeah, if uh, if it's in Europe, it's burning up. It means that the the most uh, uh, close metaphor that I would use is a Finnish sauna. Oh, so yeah. if you tried sauna before, <laughs> this is our situation here in Doha. It's uh, between forty three up to forty seven Celsius, wow. and on top of that, you might have some also days with. Uh, 70 to 90 percent humidity so it's pretty tough it's pretty tough so do you do you go out uh, and enjoy like the, the the life in the city or no not until the sun is set well yeah t- during the daytime usually people are we 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 start the day usually very early in the morning like uh, maximum by six thirty seven, everybody would be in his or her desk but uh, Going out and enjoying the different spaces and eating out and stuff like that, all of this would be after the sunset because at that time, humidity would be decreased and also the temperature would be more tolerable. Uh, On top of that, as you might know from your knowledge about Gulf cities and also Iraq and other places, uh, there are a lot of air-conditioned spaces. Yeah. But I'm not that much excited about air-conditioned. So I try as much as I can to enjoy uh, outdoor spaces still it's really impossible then i have to go inside yeah but this but this situation is only during the summer but or or no you you also face it uh, 
in other seasons? No, I would I would argue that you have uh, four months per year, uh, and the peak is in July and August. Uh, a bit of tough weather in June, maybe it will be a bit extended to September. Uh, but rather than that, I would definitely, definitely see a lot of people and kids enjoying the outdoor spaces, gardens, playing sports, walking by the beach, and so on and yeah. so forth. This is so beautiful. So, Ali, let's talk about you. And I'm I'm very interested to hear your story and the listener as well. So how would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? Well, sure. Uh, as I said, I am from uh, Cairo, Egypt. I was raised there. Uh, uh, and uh, it was interesting that I selected to study architecture. Nobody, usually you have a kind of reference in your family, yeah, maybe your exactly. dad, your mother, some <laughs> relatives, and so on and so forth. But ironically, none, none, none of my family members were related uh, uh, in in any kind of form with architecture. Uh, but you know, Mustafa, since a very early age, I started to focus on, uh, I'm elaborating on it now, but I just want to share this feeling with you, that I started to focus on the relation between people and places. I was so excited about observing people and particularly observing people while occupying places, while walking in streets, while sitting by the, the, the waterfront, and so on and so forth. And then I started to uh, sort of develop this, this kind of relation to a notion where I, I, I asked myself, if in some situation this relation between people and places can be enhanced, who can do that? And I started to pose questions for people that I know, friends of my dad, and so on and so forth, till I came to the, to the conclusion that the person who can really enhance the relation between people and places, they called it architect. And therefore, I decided to study uh, architecture. That's uh, amazing. I, where, where did you grow up? In which city? In Cairo. In Cairo. In Cairo. Yeah. yeah. In Cairo. Most of my life was in Cairo. And I did study architecture as an undergraduate at Cairo University School of Architecture, which is one of the top schools in Egypt, followed by, oh, I, was all, I, I was a good student, so I was selected to be uh, w what we call the teaching assistant. But in Egypt, they will select the top students to offer them this as a job, as a full-time job. And during that, you also do your master degree, which I did. And then after that, I traveled to the States to continue my postgraduate studies in the University of California at Berkeley. How was, uh, it's interesting now for me, like how was the difference between the schools? Is it tougher in, in, in Cairo or, or in the US, like study-wise architecture? Like, because I know in general, like architecture is super tough to study. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I, I will be very, very honest with you. Um, yeah. In my opinion, the fundamental difference between studying in, in Egypt and in the U.S. was so much related to your position as a student. During my undergraduate years at Cairo University, I was always under the impression or the idea of that I am only a receiver was so much amplified in my mind that you have a professor and this professor is literally acting as God. 
whatever he or she would say, you yeah. have to believe in it, you have to imitate it. And I yeah. think the fundamental problem, Mustafa, is that most of the professors were trying to create replica of their own thoughts as opposed mm. to to create yeah. different personalities and, and, and different uh, approaches. And this is something that I felt in a, in a dramatically different manner in, 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 in the U.S., particularly in, in Berkeley, because Berkeley is a very liberal school. And uh, from the very first day, you feel that all the professors, they are encouraging you to have your own independency, you have your own position, you have your own point of view. And hence, you started to develop uh, interesting uh, tools regarding particularly the critical thinking and how to examine issues. Yeah, I, I, I can relate also like to your story and my story also because I study in, in different universities in Sweden and also in Milan. And also in Milan was like this, like more you should listen to what the professor wants and uh, should follow also. You can, of course, you can like create your own path and or design and concept. But the, in the end, it, this concept should really match with what the professor thinks. But here in, uh, in Stockholm, it's the opposite. Like they, they let you do what you want. And uh, they have to say, you, you, you're allowed to shape your own concept without uh, needing to follow something. Like you can create by your own. And I think here is like the, how to find the balance between like the guidelines, the prof what the professor, the theory and the, your own. I, I totally agree with you. And I, I think the way you, 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 you describe it is, is absolutely 100% correct, particularly the notion of what is the role of the professor? What is the role of an academic person? It seems to me that the fundamental role, and I'm, I'm doing that now as a professor and as an educator, our crucial responsibility is to stimulate students to motivate students, to make sure that you're getting from them something that the student himself or herself was not even aware that he can achieve that. And, and, I, and I think this is, this is uh, the essence of our role. And, and this is the beauty of education, that you, you dedicate yourself to your students, and then suddenly you have all of these brilliant, brilliant students flourishing and winning competitions, uh, doing excellent pieces of research, and so on and so forth. And all of them, this is also wonderful, that all of them, they are grateful to you, but they are radically different than you. And I think exactly. this is the ultimate success. Exactly. So you went to the US, you, you, you study your master, right? And what happened? You stayed there for how long or when did you came back to uh, Cairo? I came back to Cairo in 1996. 1996, and I joined Cairo University as uh, uh, an assistant professor. Uh, and that was for almost five, six years where I was teaching. And I also had my own design studio. So because uh, for a number of reasons, number one, that... Uh, the income of teaching in, in Egypt is so limited to the extent that you cannot sustain uh, your life. And at that time, I had uh, uh, two kids, my wife, of course, and two kids. Uh, so, so working is fundamentally important. But also, as an architect, I felt that uh, I, I want to I wanna 
manifest my thoughts. I want to manifest my ideas. And nothing can do that better than uh, participating in competitions and, and building. So, so I was doing both in, in those uh, uh, five, six years in, in, in Egypt when I came back from the States. I was teaching and also I was uh, practicing. But then you moved to Bahrain, was it first, or Qatar? I was uh, I was so reluctant to go to the Gulf because I have to admit to you that uh, the Gulf for me was uh, a sort of a, a money gathering mission. You know, it's like an American dream. Uh, no, it was actually it was the opposite to me. To me, going to the Gulf, knowing all the stories about people from from Iraq, from Jordan, from Syria, from Egypt, going to Kuwait and and Saudi Arabia and so on and so forth. To me, going to the Gulf meant just a matter of money gathering mission. Making making money. Exactly. And this is not me. I am not interested. Of course, I want to sustain my life, but I'm, this is not my ultimate goal. But what was interesting that the, the, the Bahraini people, they met me in a conference and then they said, we will invite you first to Bahrain to give a lecture and to see the place uh, because it seems to us that you have totally wrong perception. And I went there and I was so lucky because Bahrain is, a, is an island, very small island. It's, it's a beautiful place. And, and the people in Bahrain, I cannot tell you how much they are so kind, generous, uh, uh, caring for people. And I, I had a wonderful time there. Yeah, I can imagine. I heard a lot, a lot, so many stories like from, from my cousins about Bahrain and how hospitable and friendly Absolutely. people there. Absolutely. Yeah. So you stayed there for how long? For more than five years. And then I moved to Doha, Qatar. And you stayed here right, until now. Right. Yeah. So what are you working with now? Well, I actually, I, have, I am having two hats here in Doha. Uh, number one, I am a professor at Hamad bin Khalifa University. I'm teaching there on the graduate level now. So I'm working only with the master's students and PhD students. And uh, on top of that, I am also the advisor for the Ministry of uh, Urban Planning and Municipalities regarding research, development, and capacity building. Wow, and, that's and, amazing. And, and that was a very interesting job, uh, Mustafa, because uh, this is so much related to what you were saying about writing. Because this job, I got it because of a small essay that I wrote it in the, one of the uh, Qatari uh, uh, newspapers here. Really? Yeah, I wrote a small uh, article. <laughs> you know, in, 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 in Qatar, I was amazed with the financial scale, right? So you're talking about a country where 85% of the people here of the population are expats and only 15% are locals. So whenever you have a graduate, a local graduate from engineering, from architecture, from business administration, he will be a top management manager in the next day. You know? Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. So I wrote this piece to tell the, uh, the public opinion that although I really appreciate that, but at the same time, you prevent those beautiful young people from gaining a gradual experience from having a gradual knowledge. And hence, it's a must to create different programs of capacity building, not training. I'm not talking about someone that you, you should train him because this is even not for their own dignity, but at least capacity building. And therefore, you will create opportunities and platforms for them to enhance their knowledge. 
And I was so happy that uh, the minister's office contacted me and uh, the, the head of the Urban Planning Authority contacted me and they said, we read, we read your article and we're so excited about it. Come and give us a presentation if you have uh, a job of advisor for that. What would you do? And I did the presentation, and since then, I'm enjoying this. So I'm doing a lot of uh, workshops, uh, seminars, uh, interactive uh, cases, studies, analysis, and so on and so forth. And it's very, very helpful. That's amazing. Like, how how much powerful few words can be? Totally. Right? I, I totally agree. To I change, totally like, agree. a big part of a system. I totally agree. I totally and agree. this is like also one part of why I, I like like to follow you, what you do, because like you're, you're producing content and also it's very valuable and interesting, like a way of thinking. And this is what I love about social media is that uh, ex- exchanging content, uh, thoughts, concept to, to like, so I, I, I get what you, what you have in Doha and maybe apply it here, of course, with, with some like uh, justifying so it fits to the Swedish system. But this is, I think, the valuable thing with LinkedIn or other platforms that we exchange. Totally. And, totally. and again, I'm, I'm very grateful that you give your time to record the, the podcast and this episode. And I hope we, we're going to record even more. No, definitely would do that. I'm enjoying every minute with you. Definitely will do that. Thank you so much. And this episode is, is about cities hosting big events. And we're going to talk particularly about Doha because you're going to host uh, the World Cup FIFA 2022. And it's a big transformation. So together, we're going to talk about this topic and also about future cities and how the big events will be. And, and I'm interested in hearing your reflection. So let's, let's start with the city, like Doha. Can you give us a highlight about the city? Sure. Um, let me put Doha first in the context of Qatar. Qatar is a peninsula with only border lines with Saudi Arabia in the south. And uh, Qatar is also part of what we call it the Gulf Cooperation Council, which are the main six uh, Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, uh, Oman, uh, Bahrain, and Kuwait. Um, what is interesting about those six countries that they are basically related to number of tribes that used to be in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and therefore, you will have a lot of very strong blood relations between all of them. And all of them were living on one way or another on the notion of pearl diving and fishing. And therefore, if you look at the anatomy of different Gulf cities like Kuwait or Manama Bahrain or uh, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia or Doha in Qatar, all of these are portal cities. There are, they were developed along the waterline of the Gulf. And uh, it was a very compacted traditional settlements. But the fundamental, the fundamental transformation, the fundamental change that took place in the late 40s, early 50s was the discovery of oil. Because the discovery of oil changed the fate of all of these uh, countries in a, in a big, big manner. And I, I, I would even advise uh, your, your uh, audience to look at uh, a, a beautiful, beautiful novel uh, 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 written by uh, 
the very famous Saudi slash Yemeni uh, 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 intellectual uh, and, and writer Abdurrahman Munayf, uh, his, uh, uh, his novel called Cities of Salt. And, and the beauty of this book is that he was able to capture what I call it the essence of change. Because every, every one of us is changing. Countries change, cities change. But the irony here is the pace of change. The, the, the idea of changing literally in very limited number of years. And I think he was able to, to, to capture this. And on top of this, what kind of change you're talking about? Change in the city, change socially, change politically, change culturally, change economically. So uh, uh, this is really uh, interesting if you want to have a sort of comprehensive understanding about the Gulf. Now, because of that also, all of the Gulf states are city-states in the sense that you will find a single city which is basically representing the country. So if you say Doha, Doha is Qatar and Qatar is Doha. If you go to Bahrain, Manama is Bahrain and Bahrain is Manama and also Muharraq to a bit extent. And, and the story goes like that. Kuwait City is Kuwait and, and Kuwait is, is Kuwait City. So, so th that was the case. And then the city was subjected to cycles of development because of the oil revenues, modernization and... Uh, taking care of the community facilities, housing projects, and so on and so forth. And then the beginning of the millennia was kind of interesting transformation that also I want to talk with you about it. Of course, yes. So this is Doha. How many people live in Doha now? Uh, the, the total population now is uh, 2.8 million. Wow. 85% of them are expats coming from more than 150 nationalities. That's amazing. So you have incredible mosaic of people. Wherever you go in Doha, in a coffee shop, university, restaurant, uh, shopping mall, literally you will meet people from the six continents and from every spot of the globe. What a diverse city. So like... When you walk in the city, like when, let's say when the weather is good, do you see this like it's, it's packed with people or no? There is like, it's not the super tight city and dense with people. Well, this is, this is really a beautiful question, uh, Mustafa, because it, it's not only about observing the behavior of people, but it's also related so much to one of the major transformations that took place in, in 2009, 2010, when actually 2010 i would i would be more accurate because this is the the, the year where doha won uh, the honor of hosting the fifa 2022 and at that time a lot of brainstorming started to take place particularly regarding the atmosphere of the city the spirit of the city because also as you might know oil in in doha is extremely cheap very similar to the rest of the Gulf. And therefore, everybody's using cars. It was a very car-dependent city. And, and the urbanism is helping that in the sense that it's very scattered. People are working in a place, shopping in another place. They, they send their kids to another uh, place to school and so on and so forth. And the only solution 
to connect all of these journeys is having a good big land cruiser or <laughs> Nissan Patrol or what have you. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, what we were able to do since 2010 is to introduce the culture of walking. But also, to be honest with you, you cannot go to the community and tell them, please walk. Walking is, is an environment. You have to design this environment. You have to prepare this environment. So we started to look at the meaning of street, for instance. And I had, I had a very long workshop at the Ministry of Urban Planning and, and Municipality regarding, I called it even, Mustafa, from highways to streets. Because my, my point at that time is that there was no streets in the Gulf. There was no streets in any Gulf city. All of them are highways because you're not expecting people to walk. So everybody's using cars. But then to do the transformation and, 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 and to transform streets, uh, transform highways into streets by uh, better, better planning, using uh, a, a, a extensive street furniture, landscaping, reducing the lanes, extending the sidewalks, and so on and so forth. It took a bit of effort, and also it took a bit of uh, campaigns to change the public awareness. Also, parallel to this, we started to work on the metro and the underground transportation and public transportation, because also if you want to encourage people to walk, you want to encourage them also to use public transportation. I mean, I go, and you also, for sure, you go to a lot of European cities, and from the airport to, to wherever you want, you don't use cars, right? Actually, some cities now will punish you if you have a private car in terms of parking and taxes Welcome and so on and so Stockholm. forth. Welcome to Stockholm. Exactly. Here you go. <laughs> so, so, we were, so now, to be very honest with you, if you visit Doha now, you will be amazed how people are walking by the waterfront, enjoying the public spaces, enjoying the green spaces. And I think that was fundamentally because of this qualitative change from highways to streets. So when you, when you start telling about that we should shift the mindset, the, the, our, our lifestyle and so on, how did people receive that did they tell you like what are you doing like no we used to do this it's convenient and now you're telling us to do this so like how was the the how did they welcome the idea if they welcome it right in, I, in the this beginning? is again a, a great question because as you rightly said people all the time resist change particularly if this change is not imaginable they don't know exactly what you're talking about i mean I am enjoying driving my Land Cruiser on a daily basis. And suddenly you're telling me, park the car and walk, you know? But, 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 but the beauty here is that we had a project as a case study that helped us big time. And this project was the renovation of the traditional market in Doha called Souq Waqif. Souq Waqif used to be a very small traditional market. Souq, as we, we say it in Iraq and in Egypt and in other places in the Middle East. And then this project was preserved, conserved, and developed and extended to have a, a really wonderful pedestrian experience. We use this example as the role model because a lot of people in the community started to appreciate the notion of walking. 
the notion of oh suddenly i am not stressed with the, with the uh, how to drive all of this and where to park my car and so on and so forth and hence we started to use that the other interesting idea mustafa was related to where to start so this is will take us back to the notion of observing people and we started to put our hand on some of the main people's destination like the waterfront for instance okay. how to do a wonderful promenade but it it's an active promenade active in the sense that you have places to eat you have places to drink you have some uh, public art scattered here and there so you engage people more you have lanes also for bicycles uh, picnic areas for families and so on and so forth so suddenly people started to realize that well walking is not torture it's not punishment you know because that was to be honest with you yeah. that was exactly the perception to walk means that you are punished or you are you cannot afford a car and and, and the same the same argument goes when we started the the metro because also there was a huge rejection in the beginning huge resistance how come a qatari lady would go and and ride the metro how come a qatari family would go and ride the metro i am an american expat or a british expat and you want me to abandon my porch and go to the metro but then when we started to uh, disseminate the idea that the metro consists of four lines covering all of the metropolitan doha so from the to the airport to museums to shopping centers we introduced the concept of park and ride you park your car and you take the metro to wherever you go well people started to realize that oh i can go to the university much fresher using the the the, the metro and also the quality of uh, cars and the quality of seats and and uh, as you know privacy is important so we have designated uh, cars for families and cars for women and so on and so forth and now it's it's extremely extremely successful it's interesting because like here are, are are many points. The first one is about like how do you change this the the mindset and the behavior? Because even in my country back in, in Iraq, we see car as a status. You drive car because you're rich, because you're wealthy and it's convenient and so on. And if you walk it's like you're poor and you don't have a high status. And and now cities start to introduce the opposite, completely the opposite. And it's hard to introduce it back and tell them, okay, now you need to walk because walking is good because of this and this. So it's is this like changing mindset? Did you did you manage to do that like quickly or it took years until you really start to see people taking the metros, people walking? I would uh, I would here uh, uh, discuss with you the 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 financial aspect because as you know there are plenty of financial resources in Qatar. Qatar uh, is still one of the top top countries in terms of the GDP and also in terms of the annual average annual income and so on and so forth, and their ability to sell oil and also to sell liquefied gas created kind of unlimited financial resources for the country. And hence, whenever you have a project or a new urban strategy or a new planning policy. you can quickly allocate resources to realize this so the element of time i would say it's a bit shortened in the case of qatar and doha because of the availability of the financial resources but you still 
you still have a very valid point regarding the resistance of the community and the resistance of people. But here, Mustafa, comes the importance of builded case studies. If you build case studies where people will have the first-hand experience, then you can change their minds. I mean, I remember a very interesting discussion in one of the majlis here, majlis where we get together and talk and so on. And and people were telling me, Dr. Ali, how come you would allow people from our status, as you rightly said, our social status, to write mythos and so on and so forth? And I said, but I, I, I recall that you just came back from London. And he said, yes. And I said, you were using uh, taxis or metro in London? He said, no, metro is wonderful. It's cheap, it's reliable, you can go all over the place. I said, this is exactly the case. But in London, you know that when people will look at you, will look at you as a different person. Here, you are afraid that maybe some of your family members or relatives will see you in the middle. But if we break this kind of fear and all of us started to use the middle, then everything will be fine. And I think here, I don't want to flatter the ruling family, but when, when Sheikh Tamim and Sheikh Amayasa and different members of the ruling family started to use the metro not for ceremonial activities, but to go to places, it made a huge change. Yeah, it's influencing. Absolutely, 100%. It's like the prime minister in Holland riding his bike, you know, exactly. this kind of thing. Like in the end, in the end, it's also like about not only about planners, urban planners changing the cities, but it's also like we need all the different stakeholders and, and different people. And it's important that the leadership walk the talk, you know, not only putting the visions and, and talking and sustainable cities, but actually doing it also, like being part of it. Can't agree more, Mustafa, because also people, they, 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 they hate that we just breach them. We just breach people as if we are in a mosque or a church, but we don't actualize what we are talking about. But when, when they feel that these are authentic concepts, and as you rightly said, from the top, top tier in the country, all the way to planners, uh, media people, uh, professors, and so on and so forth, everyone in this kind of stakeholder kind of matrix, he or she believes in this, then that's, it will be a huge, huge change. Because, because we are talking about the city. And a city is like uh, of, of many groups, people, passions. So if we are not all together doing this, it's not going to really work. And, and I have a question now. Like, do you think this transformation, like from cities for cars to cities for people, is it because of winning the World Cup or no? There was, it started before. To, to be very honest with you, we started before. But a lot of very positive things were accelerated, were accepted by the top leaders and the top decision makers because of the, the winning, uh, the, the hosting the FIFA 2022. But at the same time, I want to also uh, uh, stress very interesting point to Mustafa that from the very early time after winning the hosting the FIFA 2022, there were a lot of effort regarding how can we learn from previous cases, particularly situations like South Africa, like Brazil, 
like Moscow. Moscow, they had the, the FIFA in 2018, uh, four years before that in uh, uh, before that in Brazil, also in, in Brazil, also in South Africa. And what was interesting that we traveled, we traveled to all of these destinations. Okay, study trip. Personally, I went to South Africa and I also I went to Russia, to Moscow. And the main, the main reason, Mustafa, was to make sure how we can do whatever is needed for hosting the cup without compromising the future, without compromising the actual needs of the future generations. Because for instance, I remember in one of my interviews in, in Durban, a beautiful city by the ocean in the south of South Africa, and I, I had a wonderful, wonderful uh, interview with a number of uh, urban planners, architects, community activists, and so on and so forth. And they literally told me that we felt betrayed, betrayed in the sense that everybody was telling us that once you have the FIFA uh, Cup here, everybody would be rich and the cities would be absolutely state of the art. And, and everything vanished and we ended up with huge empty stadiums and five stars hotels that we cannot even afford to walk by it, you know, not only to enter it, to even walk by it. And I think those are the kind of lessons that we have learned. The same goes with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Brazil. You remember the rights in uh, Rio de Janeiro and other places where people again felt that after spending all of this money, nothing is affecting us. So the, the, the vision in Qatar was different, and hence we started to introduce the term legacy. Legacy in the sense that having the, 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 the cup in Qatar for 30 days, it's wonderful. But the question is, how we will use all the resources preparing for the cup to be extended for the rest of the future of the city and the country and so on and so forth. And I can elaborate on that later. Of course. So this, this is like the first challenge. Okay. How do we create something now that will last even for the future? Yeah. Not only for the 30 days of the competition, because the competition is only for one month. What are other challenges that you, you, you put on, on, on the map and you say, okay, we have these challenges before you start actually the work. Sure. Um, another very important issue is connectivity, because you know having such a, 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 a scale of competition with, with, with when you host all of these teams and their needs and uh, and you are expecting something around two million people coming to the city. So one of the major challenge was related to how you re-envision the urban transportation in the city. One of the decisions was uh, the metro, 100%. And as I, uh, I, I explained earlier, uh, it's not like the case of Dubai where it's only a line. The metro in Dubai is a single line penetrating uh, Sheikh Zayed Road. In our case here, the metro is network, network of four intersected lines, and those four intersected lines goes, as I said, all the way, including to stadiums. So each stadium has its own, uh, its own uh, station, or at least you will reach a station 10 minutes away from the stadium and buses, or you can walk because you, we prepared very interesting walking uh, 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 routes and bicycle routes towards the stadium. 
another another very interesting challenge, Mustafa, was also related to accommodation, because you don't want to build a lot of hotels hosting all of these people, and then once the competition is over, you, 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 all of these hotels will be empty. Because uh, I mean, yeah. Qatar is not Spain or Italy where you receive millions of tourists per year, right? So, how to be creative? in terms of accommodating people and 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 hence sky was the limit and and now i can and i can recite with you the different options but all of these are realized now and i will tell you about very very interesting options to how to to, to sleep in qatar during the uh, <laughs> uh, uh, world cup so so sustainability and uh, transportation accommodation the the main big challenges are there more? Yeah. The, 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 in, 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 in the 5th of June in 2017, we wake up in the morning and we realize that three of our neighbors, Saudi Arabia, Emirates and Bahrain, activated a total blockade against Qatar. I don't know if you heard about it or not, but it was a total blockade, air, ground and sea. And also Egypt joined them. So... That was a, a huge story. Maybe you can talk about it later because it has also political uh, amplific- implications and, 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 and economical and so on and so forth. But what's very interesting here related to the, to the uh, World Cup is that all the materials that you bring to build the stadiums, to build hotels, to, to continue the metro lines and so on and so forth are imported. So if your ports are closed, if your airport is closed, so that was a very, very tough challenge. But uh, I think the, the, the Qatari diplomacy uh, made a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, strategies and roles. And uh, quickly they were able to override this crisis and uh, nothing was delayed. Everything was wonderful. Even the head of the, of the FIFA came here uh, a year and a half ago. To, to, for a side visit, and he was amazed that for the very first time in the history of FIFA, that a, a year and a half before the beginning of the competition, and all the stadiums were done, most of the accommodation were prepared, the city is kind of in the process of beautification and landscaping and, and gardening and so on and so forth. So he was very positive in his evaluation. That's amazing. So tell me about the transport, the transformation from urban planning and, and design, urban design wise. So what did happen in the city? Because I imagine like you introduced a lot of new infrastructures, like big things happen. Doha was subjected, in my opinion, and I did a lot of writings about that, to two more transformations. One is related to the World Cup. And the second one, in my opinion, and also in the terminology that I use in my research, is going away from the Dubaification jacket, right? And the Dubaification jacket here means the the imitation of Dubai. No one would argue that Dubai was able to create its own urban brand. And this urban brand was created uh, via the real estate fantasies, the Palm Project, the World Project, the biggest uh, 
shopping mall on earth, the highest tower in the world, uh, Tom Cruise is going back and forth on top of the tower, and so on and so forth. And I have to admit to you that in late 90s, early 2000, most of the Gulf cities were doing nothing but imitating Dubai, including Doha, including Doha. We want to build skyscrapers. We want to build shopping malls. We want to, and so on and so forth. Now, in my opinion, the fundamental change that took place in Qatar was so much related to the introducing of knowledge economy and the idea of oil and gas are not here forever. Oil and gas will be subjected to Number one, either depletion, you don't have resources anymore, right? Because you are basically sucking uh, 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 oil and gas from, from the land or the sea. Number two, with the environmental revolution and the sustainability revolution happening in the, all of the world and more relying on, on renewable energies, then you might reach a situation where Oil is not relevant to development anymore. Gas is not relevant to, 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 to development anymore because people are using energy from the wind, from the sun, from uh, waves movement, and so on and so forth. And because of that, we started to consider knowledge-based urban development, how to transform the city into a place for education, research, culture. So a lot of the project at that time, Mustafa, was related to one project called Education City, where excellent, excellent number of universities from all over the world, particularly American, were, were invited to have their own campuses there. But number of research centers. Uh, IMPay was invited to design the Museum of Islamic Art. John Novell was invited to do the, muse the Qatar National Museum. So suddenly you have a situation from 2010 to 2020 where we are not excited about skyscrapers anymore. But actually, the, 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 the main achievements of this decade from 2010 to 2020 uh, were more directed towards research, education, culture, museums, and so on and so forth. So that was a fundamental, fundamental transformation. Uh, parallel with the, the preparation of the city to be able to host the FIFA 2022. This is also a kind of a branding, the city, but w more with like knowledge and culture point of view, not really how to say spending money or, or, or like fancy restaurant and so on. So is this popular to visit for other people? Yes, of, of course, because, you know... Number one, Mustafa, there is no point to imitate the imitator. I mean, in the sense that Dubai is imitating Singapore, Houston, New York. You know what I'm saying? I mean, a lot of people would go to Dubai and they would say, we were impressed, but we were not able to feel the city. There's no spirit there. I mean, it's like a very transit, a very transit kind of place. I, in one of my articles, I describe Dubai as a big airport. Very big airport, you know. In airports, you are impressed. You meet people, but you know that you're leaving. You know that you don't have sense of belonging to the airport, right? 
as opposed to what is happening in other Gulf cities like Masqat in Oman, for instance, or Manama, they did realize, and also Doha in the last uh, decade, they did realize that there's no point to keep on imitating Dubai because you are imitating the imitator. It's much better, and I would argue that every single city, Mustafa, has its own story, has its own narrative. If you look at Iraq, for instance, Basra is a story, Baghdad is a story, Sulaymaniya is a story. And hence, the very, the very uh, authentic, sincere effort should be geared towards understanding the personality of the city, understanding the qualities of the city, and try to create also contemporary factors that all of which would help to create a distinguished, and as you rightly said, a, a new brand that is related to you rather than a brand to be imitated. And, and what happened now, like after these two big transformations? So if, if we talk now about like now on the ground, so tell me about what, what did happen? What is the transformation? What did you start to see or seeing now in the city? I can, like you mentioned the metro, but like what other infrastructure or, or elements that... Well, to facilitate this discussion, let me tell you something interesting also related to the FIFA 2022. One of the very interesting things about the competition in Doha that you can actually attend two or three matches in the same day because of the proximity. Doha is a very small uh, peninsula. It's uh, almost, the width is 70 kilometers, 70, 80 kilometers, and the length is... uh, uh, 130, 140, right? It's a total area of uh, uh, 11,000 uh, kilometers square. Now, this is radically different than Brazil or Russia uh, or South Africa because in those countries, the competition were in different cities and then you have to fly from a different city to a city to attend another match and not everybody can afford that. So people would be sort of uh, stuck with the city that they are in, watching the matches over there, and then maybe in the quarterfinals or semifinals. I, or whatever. I attended. I attended uh, the one in Russia. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. You have to move. Even you are in in Moscow. Yeah. Then to St. Petersburg and and take the train accommodation. It was like a big like headache. But yes, continue. Exactly. Now because of that. If you look at the situation now in Qatar, it, it's a very, very interesting kind of, uh, of uh, um, urban morphology, if, if you would accept the term, in the sense that the city now, metropolitan city, and also the big cities adjacent to it, like Al-Wakra and Al-Khur, because Al-Wakra, we have a stadium over there uh, designed by uh, Zaha Hadid, and also in, uh, in Al-Khur, there's a stadium um, and the main stadium in, uh, in the north of Doha uh, called Lusail Stadium designed by Norman Forster. Now, each of those stadiums, Mustafa, is becoming a sort of center of development. And it creates a kind of uh, energy, urban energy around it connected to uh, mixed-use development, 
connected to uh, some residential neighborhoods, some commercial activities, and definitely to a lot of uh, public transportation nodes. Another very interesting idea that you can also notice underground, Mustafa, is so much related to a question also that we as architects and urban designers posed for the decision makers, which is what will happen before the matches and after the matches for, for the people visiting the city? So, for instance, we started to have a, a green and recreational spaces strategy to be implemented all over Qatar. So you cannot imagine the number of parks and green spaces and recreational trails that were not only planned and executed. So suddenly the city is transforming literally into a green city, into a big park, as if it's a big park. Each of the main museums, like Qatar National Museum or Museum of Islamic Art, all of them now are adjacent or articulated around a big green recreational space. Another interesting thing, Mustafa, also is related to heritage areas and historical areas, because it's very important for people visiting the country to be exposed to its culture and its heritage. So a lot of projects related to conservation, preservation, and also rehabilitation of these buildings, because Again, one of my workshops was so related to the differentiation between negative conservation and positive conservation. Negative in the sense that you do the restoration and then you close the house or the wikala or whatever, and then it will deteriorate again. But if you start to examine the needs of the community and try to transform this piece of, uh, of heritage into something that the community needs, then it will survive and they will be having a sense of belonging towards it. So this is also one of the things that we are doing uh, extensively. So all of these features are, I would say, blooming now. You can see it, you can feel it. Uh, gardens and public spaces, uh, excellent roads, public transportations, pedestrians, walkways, uh, bicycle routes, and so on and so forth. Talking about uh, like uh, copying from other cities, Let's say when we come to Doha, will we feel the, the spirit, the identity of a Doha or we will see like, okay, this bike line looks like the one in Stockholm and maybe this park exactly the one in Netherlands. Do you understand me? Like, will we feel Doha or, or will we will see a collection of fancy concepts from different uh, cities? This is... Uh... This is the, this is a PhD question, literally. <laughs> I mean, you can you can do PhD. No, I'm 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 very serious. Okay. I'm very serious because in the Middle East, Mustafa, and maybe you would agree with me upon that, that our our understanding, our our articulation of the notion of of identity, is so historical, is so backward, backward in the sense that we will select a specific kind of. Uh, historical era in our in our history and we will say to to have good identity it means that every single building should be a replica of the mamluk period or the uh, fatimid period and we have to have a lot of masharabia and a lot of arcades and a lot of uh, and so you know the story 
I would argue, I would argue, and this is what we were doing, uh, convincing uh, decision makers and even architects and urban designers and, and all of these workshops and seminars, that identity is a very dynamic notion. So what you are building today is part of the identity for tomorrow. What you built 10 years ago is also part of it. So it's a continuous process. So to answer your question, when you will come and visit Doha, inshallah, you will realize that we had a phase in the city where, as I, I, I confessed for you, it was a replica of Dubai in terms of skyscrapers and shopping malls and so on and so forth. But also, you will clearly notice that different parts of the city are manifestation of what I called it dynamic identity. Dynamic in the sense that you will feel the history of the city, you will feel the old chapters, but also you will see the new chapters. So as if it's a continuous narrative, rather than to transform the city into an exhibition, a museum of different periods, totally independent. Yeah. And tell me more, because you told me like about the transportation, accommodation. So tell me like about the experience when it comes to accommodation. Because this is like, I know this is like a huge, huge uh, topic and okay, building hotels or Airbnb or, or what are we going to do? So, so tell us the story. Sure, that, that, that was one of the very important lessons that we have learned from particularly South Africa, because they, they had to build all of these hotels and hostels and so on and so forth. And, you know, after people left, Finish. You're not using this and you cannot, you cannot bring all of these tourists again. So, again, because of the proximity of the competition in Qatar at the proximity of the stadiums and the fact that Qatar is too small, we started to have a lot of brainstorming sessions regarding how to accommodate people without extensive building of hotels and hotel apartments and so on and so forth. So, one of the very interesting ideas, for instance, and actually they started to arrive to Doha now, is floating hotels. Do you know those big, uh, big ships that they travel around the Mediterranean or around the, uh, the Caribbean and so on and so forth? Now, the, the government did number of contracts with uh, some of those mega floating hotels that they will come and stay on uh, 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 the decks of the Doha port. And some of them, they have a capacity of uh, six and 7,000 people, believe it or not, in one ship, in one ship. So you will be on the ship enjoying your room, enjoying the pool there, enjoying the food and the facilities and everything. And then buses will be come to the port taking you to either you want to enjoy the city or you want to go to one of the matches. Once the competition is over, those uh, ships would go back to their uh, uh, normal uh, uh, tours around the Mediterranean or around the Caribbean or what have you. Another very interesting idea, Mustafa, uh, was generated from how to pay back to your country, how to, sh to, to, to show a level of solidarity with your country. And that was done via what they called it, hosting a fan, hosting a FIFA fan. And hence, people started via a specific website 
to say that, for instance, I have two bedroom apartment, but I am living alone and I am willing to accommodate a couple of guys in the second room. Or, as you know, people are particularly Qataris, they are rich and they have big houses and sometimes they have more than one house. Those also, they will go to this website and they will say, I have a summer house near the beach and it, uh, it's four bedroom uh, house and I can accommodate maybe 10 or 12 people over there. So suddenly the government started to compile this list of uh, people interested in hosting fans. And you cannot imagine that the capacity of this program now is almost reaching half a million, accommodating half a million people wow. in their own houses, believe it or not. Wow. Another idea, and that was my idea, to be honest with you, and even in the, in the, the committee here, they are so happy with it, and, and they, they, they are finalizing this now. Uh, I, love, I love outdoors, and I love desert camping, and so on and so forth. But w when, when you talk about camping in Europe or in other places around the world, like in the U.S., for instance, if you are in, uh, in San Francisco and you want to camp in the Yosemite, this is a six hours uh, driving trip and you need preparations and so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, literally in Qatar, you can move from the heart of the city to the heart of the desert in 45 minutes. Only. In one hour. Literally, Mustafa, literally. To move from the state of the art civilization and urbanization you ride your car, you drive your car for 45 minutes or one hour, and you are in the heart of the desert. Because of the, the time I spent in Qatar and knowing that, I introduced the idea of fan desert camps. <laughs> so you, because a lot of tourists and a lot of fans, you want to enjoy the desert. Of course, I'm coming to You want to, to enjoy the atmosphere yeah. of the desert. Yeah. And the campfire and yeah. the barbecues and living in a tent and all of these beautiful and look at the sky and you see the stars. And remember when, they, when we were saying one star hotel, two stars hotel, but if you camp in the desert, it's a one million uh, stars <laughs> hotel because you look at the sky, you see? So, so th they were so happy with this idea. And now we will have different desert camps equipped with Excellent, excellent sleeping facilities, uh, uh, toilets and showers, uh, excellent dining areas, and it would create uh, the authentic, the authentic desert and Bedouin atmosphere. But then, also in the morning or in the afternoon, buses are ready to take you, and in forty-five minutes, you are watching Messi or Ronaldo or whoever uh, playing the match. Crazy so this idea. is all of these new ideas uh, helped us to go beyond the notion of you have to build hotels and hotel apartments, and then after that, it will be ghost places. No, you have the 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 needed amount of hotels and hotel apartments and so on. And then you have to be very creative in creating accommodation options that after the, 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 the competition, you don't need it anymore. And it's not a burden on you anymore. So like a crazy for me, this is like ideas are crazy, you know, like you have the, the, the ferry and then you have this uh, the, in the Sahara. And the, so it's interesting, but... Well, you know, creativity and, and, and crazy are the, the two sides of the same coin, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, like, what is the, the, the key 
to make these crazy ideas come to reality? Like, what is the key for success? Is it a leadership? Is it like, uh, I don't know. What do you think? I would, I would definitely say leadership. I am not Qatari. I'm not Qatari. So I don't need to flatter them. But, you know, uh, Mustafa, I do believe in the young generation. And, and those kind of ideas and this kind of energy is generated by the young generation of Qatari leaders. I mean, if you talk about the FIFA committee here, the organizing committee, it's led by a young Qatari. He's 33 or 34 years old, and he's doing all of this. And he's brave enough to take all of these bold decisions. But he's also supported by the Amir, which is uh, almost 40, 40, 41 years old. His sister is working with us on the museums and the cultural activities and so on and so forth, Sheikha Mayasa. So I would argue, Mustafa, that part of this is related to the youth spirit, the new spirit, and how this spirit has the potential to run and to manage and to make decisions. And on top of that, they have the financial resources. Of course, yeah. Like so many all of elements. this is working yeah. together. Yeah, because exactly. like coming with the crazy creative ideas, it's it's good. But then having someone to implement these ideas and believing it, it's something, it's another di discussion, you know? Exactly. Instead of having someone telling you, no, why, why are we taking them outside of the city? This is like, no, it's not good. Exactly. But instead telling, no, of course, let's do it. Let's have like a sleeping facilities and so on. So you can imagine that we have a lot of crazy people in Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> crazy slash creative. Yeah, exactly. If you accept the word. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We, we all know like with every transformation, there is also like a backside or back. Could be. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, so I'm wondering here, like, because from the previous stories in different countries, we see like the dark side of uh, the hosting a big events like Expo or or FIFA World Cup or and so on. Right. So here, what is what do you think, or what is the the backside of this, like the dark side, if I can mention it like this? I will I will uh, dwell on two main issues, Mustafa, if you allow me. One was so much related to this tapestry of the population that I talked about. You're talking about 2.8 million people. 85% of them are expats coming literally from every spot in the world. And 15% only are Qataris. Now, the very first important and significant challenge here is when you design any part of the city, when you plan any part in the country, you are expressing the needs of who exactly? The locals? the 15% or the 85% who are working, dedicated, contributing, right? And hence, one of the, of, the, of the major, major challenges was so much related to the notion of we are building, designing, planning for people. This is a concept that should be appreciated because in some previous stages of the development of Qatar and other uh, Gulf cities, they were so much excited about the 10% or the 15% or the 20%. And 
And although these are the original people of the, of the country or the city, but they are not representing the whole voice of the people living and working there. So this is one point. The second very important issue, Mustafa, was so much related to the behavior with construction workers and low-income workers. And again, I have to be very honest with you, although uh, I am very much uh, uh, proud of what took place in Qatar throughout the last decade, but I would also argue that, generally speaking, in the Gulf, and Qatar is no exception, the way workers were treated was not fair, was not just, and in some situations, uh, they suffered. They suffered from bad living conditions. They suffered from taking care of their health. They suffered because they know that they are in the country for two or three years and they have to collect as much money as they can, and therefore they don't eat well. They don't take care of, uh, take good care of themselves. Now, also, some of the company owners or the big contractors, they will not give them their salaries in the right time by the end of the month. Because all of these guys, they are waiting for their salaries by the end of the month to send the money to their families in India or Bangladesh or what have you. So delaying the salary for two or three months, it's torture. It means that their families are starving in Dhaka or in Kerala or what have you. So that was the case. And then the idea was how to deal with that. And, and here I have to admit that the campaign, the media campaign that took place in the West regarding Qatar, it's good that you guys are hosting the FIFA, but we cannot accept that you are using construction workers and low-paid workers uh, suffering from very tough working conditions and very tough living conditions. And uh, <clears throat> there was a very, very interesting interview between Sheikh Tamim and Christian Amanpour from the CNN. And she asked him this question in a, in a very bold manner. And what I liked about Sheikh Tamim in his response was that he admitted that we have problems and those problems, some of which are so much related to greedy contracts and greedy uh, company owners that they want to suck those workers dry. And hence, we have to change all of this. Now, the challenge here, uh, Mustafa, is how to implement this. And I will give you two, two uh, uh, features of this radical change in the way uh, low-pay uh, 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 construction workers and low-paid kind of uh, tier of workers were treated in, in Qatar. Number one, regarding their salaries, every company was forced to create a bank account for each worker with uh, 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 an ATM card and the account of the of the of the of the worker is connected to the ministry of labor so if his salary was not credited to his account by the end of the month even without complaint 
the Ministry of Labor would be activated and would definitely stop the work of this contractor. So all the contractors were in their toes. They want to send the salary to the workers even before engineers and, and top managerial staff. This is very important because it created sort of uh, psychological comfort for those people because all of them, they know that they have families waiting for them. The second important issue, Mustafa, which uh, I was personally engaged in, is the notion of living conditions. I was one of the first people who said that we need to change the terminology of calling the places where where local where where, where construction workings live workers labor camps this is very bad this is very bad and very negative you know the word camps usually is like you know very negative associations and annotations with it so now we created number of workers villages and urban settings where they have excellent accommodation places to train themselves because also you need to in, enhance your technical capabilities you're not here in qatar just to work and the same skills that you you came to qatar with you will travel back with it no you have to have vocational kind of training technical kind of training spirituality if you are coming from india if you belong to a specific kind of religion or sect you have to have a spiritual places where you practice your own religion or your spiritual exercise. Sports. If you are from India and you love cricket, you have to have this. You have to have soccer games and so on and so forth. Food. Excellent kitchens with the communal places for workers to eat together and socialize together and so on and so forth. Medical treatments and medical supervision. Because as I told you, some of those workers, and I met them and I had interviews with them, they will say, I don't want to go to the hospital. Maybe they will ask for money. Although they know that hospitals are for free, but they're still reluctant. Or I don't want to spend a lot of time on food because it's better to send it to my family. But if the food is provided for free, then they will eat. So that was also. So I would tell you that I don't want to draw here a sort of optimistic, optimistic uh, picture or portray in front of you. But what I would assure you that we have learned from those experience and we changed the quality of life for those workers, I would argue, big time if you compare it to 20 years ago. I can imagine. Exactly. And how about uh, how about like after after the FIFA World Cup, like the dark side, like in, in South Africa, Brazil, we see infrastructure left empty. How, how is how is it now in Doha? Or, or yeah. in the future, yeah, after is, the World Cup? Sure, sure. This is a wonderful question, Mustafa. I'll give you some examples regarding how we activate the concept of legacy. Legacy in the sense that what we are building for the cup is extended for the future. For instance, the FIFA World Cup would ask not only for the stadiums where you will have the matches, but also the ask for training camps. So each country they have to have their own training camp. And the training camp is basically a soccer game, a soccer field, changing rooms, small gymnasium, and small cafeteria, right? Now, what we did in terms of the Urban Planning Authority is that 
we started to dig deep into the fabric of Doha and Al-Khur and Al-Wakra and different uh, uh, Qatari cities. And we started to put our hands on the places where community facilities, we have a shortage in community facilities. Or maybe we have schools without sports and, and recreational activities. And we will insert those training camps in the fabric of this specific part of the city. And therefore, we have what we call it the FIFA plan and the post-FIFA plan. So the FIFA plan will be this part of the city would act as the training camp for Germany, for instance, or for Sweden. Once the tournament is over, this training camp would be integrated with number of schools and the community park, and hence all of these facilities will belong to the community. So you see what I'm saying? So yeah. you can apply the same mechanism on every single thing that we have done related to the FIFA. I talked already about the hotels and accommodation. Look at the stadiums, for instance. One of the stadiums called 947 Ras Abud, the whole stadium is made out of shipping uh, uh, compartments, containers. And all of this will be dismantled. So it's like Mikano. You, you just created for the stadium. And, and in a lot of other stadiums, the capacity, because you don't need the capacity of 60 and 50 southern spectators in Qatar. So we had, uh, the, the committee had an agreement with the FIFA that after the, the, the competition, half of the capacity of, the, of the, all of these stadiums will be shipped to uh, poor African countries. And Qatar will sponsor having stadiums in places like Guinea, Tanzania, Côte d'Ivoire, and so on and so forth to disseminate the culture of sports and healthy cities and so on and so forth. So to make a long story short, Yes, you pay to have to host an event like the FIFA, but 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 the the smart approach here is how to minimize the cost that is not returning back to you, and how to extend the notion of the legacy into the future of the country, the city, and the people. Yeah, I love the ideas. Like now, you're like how to say inspiring me even more. Like every every minute goes, you, you you're coming with the ideas that you implement in Doha and it's super interesting. So what does it mean for you, like from urban planning wise, like, are you excited by this transformation? Like your own reflection about what is happening. Are you happy or are you? I, I would be very frank with you, Mustafa. I am extremely happy. And, and uh, number one, I am so happy that this is happening uh, in an Arab country and Middle Eastern country because all the time we are subjected to a criticism that we cannot deliver. We don't have the organizational capacities to do something like that. And remember, Morocco applied before to host the cup and uh, it, it, they were not able to, to fly. Egypt also uh, uh, did that and uh, they were not also able to uh, have uh, uh, to be selected. So... So to have this in Qatar and to, to, to be able to create a positive environment by which I am so confident that whoever would visit the, the city and the country will have unprecedented experience. This is something that I'm so excited about. I am also excited about the fact that we use the, the, the event 
to change the behavior of people positively. You cannot imagine, Mustafa, and hopefully you will visit soon, you cannot imagine how many people abandon their cars, how many people are enjoying public spaces, how many people are enjoying walking. So to me also, the notion of how to use the urban planning tools as a catalyst to change the behavior of people positively, this is also important. I am also so excited about the notion of tolerance, diversity, acceptance, inclusion, all of these wonderful, wonderful uh, um, slogans that in some places you can hear about it from theoretical point of view, but they're not implemented. Now, hosting the FIFA 2022 paved the way for a cultural change in Qatar in the sense that, yes, we want to respect the, the culture of people and the religion and the tradition and so on and so forth, but it's wonderful to have diversified mosaic of people living and also visiting. So all of these are factors that made me really proud and happy and excited to see the final uh, games in uh, starting 18th of November. Before Qatar winning like the host of FIFA 2022, were you like uh, positive about this or not? Like before all this transformation, like as a, oh my God, uh, Qatar will host a big mega event. This will like kill the city after and so on. Like just a feeling of you before everything starts. Uh, honestly, honestly, I was optimistic because of two reasons. Uh, number one, because of this uh, youth spirit that I told you about, that the leaders are young and excited. And the second thing, that even before ho uh, winning the hosting the FIFA, Qatar was moving aggressively towards post-oil paradigm, knowledge-based urban development, knowledge economy, and the fact that I was so close to the academia and the decision-making process in the Ministry of Urban Planning, I felt that this country is trying to crystallize a different kind of approach to its future and its development. So I was optimistic. But when it, the, the winning was declared, I was also scared because, you know, it's a huge responsibility yeah. for such a small country, you know. Uh, but with planning and with dedication and with the with the commitment, the, they were able to do a wonderful job. Yeah. So, do you recommend cities or countries to host big mega events or no? Well, you know, this is interesting, Mustafa, because during COVID, we were talking a lot about the new normal, and we were talking about virtuality, and everything would be done via Zoom, and so like what we're doing now, you know. But also. By the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, when we started again to move around and to meet people and socialize, we realized that we are social animals. We love to see people and we love to be seen. So with all my due respect to virtuality and Zoom and meetings and conference, virtual Zooms and virtual events and whatever, I would argue that hosting events and bringing people from all over the world in Olympic Games or FIFA competition or uh, 
expo exhibitions or all of these kind of mega huge events would still be uh, a great opportunities for cities to compete upon and to, to the condition here, Mustafa, is as I said in the beginning of our meeting, how to be clever, smart, alert to the fact that you don't want to feel pain after the competition or after the event. The smartness here is how to host the event, but to be all the time aware of the future of your city, the future of your people. Yeah. I like now you remind me also like I talk with my manager also like it it a smart urban planner creative urban planner is not enough we need also like this great leadership that like make things happen so like it's a combination of so many elements but back to you to what you told me so you don't believe that in let's say 100 years from now that we are not going to have these big events virtually like by you know, now we we are talking about VR, but maybe in the future they're gonna be lenses or something. So you still believe that 100 years from now we're gonna still to have like big mega events and we're gonna meet ERL. Uh, you know, I am a true believer in technology and in the advancement of science. I I really believe in that, and I think uh, if you look at the last 50 years, or I mean. The history of Apple, for instance, is only limited number of decades. The history of Google, the history of, uh, you know. Uh, so I am extremely, extremely optimistic about what science and technology can do for us. But at the same time, I am a true believer in humanity. And I think part of the essence of being human is interacting with people, is to feel people, is to touch people, is to hug people is to to eat with people, you know. Uh, so with all my due respect to the wonderful, wonderful advancement that we will have over the coming 100 years or 200 years or whatever, I would argue that nothing would replace the actual uh, interactions between people. And I will give you a very interesting example, Mustafa. When we started to have very sophisticated virtual reality of uh, building tours, like museum tours. You can have actually now a tour via the uh, Albert Museum or Museum of Modern Art in New York or whatever. But still, people are standing in lines to get into the Louvre or to get into the Museum of Modern Art in New York because nothing would replace being in front of the Mona Lisa being in front of one of Picasso or Van Gogh's uh, masterpieces. Another very interesting uh, 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 example, Mustafa, when Kindle was introduced, everybody thought that you don't need to buy books anymore. You will uh, download the book in yeah. Kindle and you read it. But still people are buying books <laughs> and enjoying flipping the pages. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, what I'm trying to say, Mustafa, is that I have incredible respect to the technology and science, and I do subscribe to all the advancement that we enjoy, including the Zoom that, that actually diminished the distance between me and you. But at the same time, it will be absolutely my pleasure to hug you and eat with you and have a wonderful time together when you visit me in Doha or I visit you in Sweden. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I got I got your point. <laughs> I, I got your point. It's interesting because also 
I have some podcast recording and I told them, no, wait, I wait for you to come to Stockholm, then we record. Just because of the, it's going to be another experience. And, and even if we are having a very pleasant and interesting conversation now, I imagine if we are doing it ERL, it's another discussion, another vibe of conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially if we have some Iraqi tea <laughs> with some as goofy and it will, it will be beautiful. <laughs> and Ali, based, based... <laughs> Excellent food in Iraq, huh? Yeah, yeah, like... Beautiful food, beautiful. And in Sweden also. Sweden, what? They're famous for good food also. Yeah, like for the meatballs. Yeah, you can, yeah. You can exactly. eat in Ikea, you know. It's very famous, yeah. yeah and salmon. Yeah. A bit salmon, of salmon too. Of course, too. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. No, have you, have you been here? In, in no, unfortunately not. I've been to uh, Norway, uh, Finland, but I missed I missed Sweden. So this is a good reason to come and meet you, inshallah. Exactly, inshallah. Like it's uh, how to say you should visit the capital of Scandinavia. We call it Stockholm. I, I will do that. It's a, it's a great city too. It's a, for also architects and urban planners. It's education. you know, trip. like we introduced the one minute city you know yes like yes we yes. are fighting with carlos moreno about the sure. 15 minutes and we're sure. like hey we have a one minute city yeah now. you just open Our the door of your concept. place and you have the city around you yeah yeah so so based on your experience and all the projects and everything you you have been done what what should urban planners stop doing when we plan cities and why um I would say one thing, and maybe we'll elaborate on it in one more episode, but uh, to, to good, for a good number of years and decades, Mustafa, we were trained that we are solution providers as architects, as urban designers, as urban planners. We know the knowledge. We went to school of architecture or planning, so we know how to solve problems. Now, in the last two decades, we started really to realize that people also, people, the community, they have very mature approach to their problems. They know what exactly they're looking for. So I would claim that one of the fundamental changes that we need to do as architects, urban designers, and planners is to move away from the ivory towers and imposing solutions on people to a paradigm where we listen more to people. We learn from people. We get inspired by people. And I think uh, in, in Stockholm, they're doing that. In Copenhagen, they're doing that. In Amsterdam, they're doing that. Uh, Finland, in Helsinki, I saw a wonderful examples where projects are generated by the people and for the people. And in this sense, the, the architect or the urban planner is more like a facilitator, uh, a, simu- a stimulator for the discussion. And also he or she has the technical capabilities to transform those ideas into drawings and, and, and construction documents and so on and so forth. So my ultimate goal, uh, Mustafa, or my ultimate uh, wish is that we will move more towards authentic and real community participation in the process of designing buildings and places and, and, and cities and so on. Yeah. I will take this answer because then it will be another question. What skills should urban planners learn and why? This is also a great question. You know, urban planning 
is more sophisticated than architecture. And hence, I would argue that every single urban designer and urban planner, they have to study extensive sociology, extensive anthropology, extensive um, creative economy, not economy, the typical economy of uh, one plus one equals two, but how economy is helping the development of a city, how economy is helping the development of a community, how to go into different economic paradigm in a city or an economy or, or a country. Like for instance, you look at what was happening in countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and whatever, you only sell oil, but then you have to think about industry. So this is industrial economy, different kind of economy. And then you have to move to knowledge and creative economy. And this is, again, a different paradigm shift. So I think what I'm trying to say is that urban planning, per se, is a very sophisticated profession that cannot, cannot be only limited to the notion of zoning and distribution of land use and so on and so forth. I, we have to have depth in urban planning education and urban planning preparation. And I don't think that this depth can be achieved without the integration of multidisciplinary approach to even architecture and urban design and planning. You are a great professor. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Are 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 you teaching this to the future urban planners? What are you doing from your place? One position. I think uh, since I was a, a, a teaching assistant, I all the time I promised myself that I will never have any form of contradiction between what I'm teaching and what I'm writing in my research and what I am practicing. So. In some situations, Mustafa, you have huge discrepancy between how you teach and how you conduct research and how you do practice. And you see people saying that I am only conducting practice so I can put food on the table. Or research is only uh, an, a theoretical exercise to maintain my promotion in the academic career, what have you. A teaching is... a uh, a one-way process to educate the young people about a profession. No, Mustafa. I think the ideal situation is to look at the three domains as a representation of a single personality, a single set of values, a single set of principles. Although it's difficult, but I learned from other professors that they were able to do that. They were able to design a building that they can do a research upon it and they can provide analysis for it for their students. And I think this is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And in the beginning of this episode, we talked about the role of a professor. Should, be, should you be a facilitator or you should really like guide and, and emphasize your, your, your theory and thoughts and so on? So wh- how do you define the role of a professor at university? Well... You know, during COVID-19, I was doing a lot of reflections. And I did realize that 
suddenly students are not coming to the school anymore. You teach via Zoom. So they don't need you anymore. Number two, the amount of courses, workshops, curricula that was available for free on the internet was overwhelming. All of this led me to a question, Mustafa, related to when COVID is over and we will go back to the schools and we will go back to the studios and so on and so forth, what exactly are you doing? Because if you will tell the students that, I want to explain for you Guggenheim Museum. Well, we did that. We saw it on the internet. We saw plenty of explanation for that. Or I will tell you, I will share with you the design process. Well, we saw plenty of videos explaining that. I think, Mustafa, our role should be manifested in two main aspects. Number one, to encourage our creativity. To encourage the creativity of the students and give them the opportunity to believe in themselves. To believe that I can do something special. I can do something unique. The other interesting aspect, Mustafa, is the critical capabilities. Because without critical thinking, without the ability to criticize, to analyze, and to come up with your own kind of thoughts about a city, about a building, about an urban setting, you cannot really develop. So to make a long story short, I think, in my opinion, the ideal role of a professor in a contemporary school now is to make sure that he's doing his utmost capacity to enhance the creativity of his uh, uh, or her students. Number two is to engage them in a discourse where critical thinking would be valuable. What is, what is like the biggest challenge that you're facing now? And you'd be like, oh, this is like super difficult. Maybe not super difficult, but it's a, it's a challenge for you every day. Um, well, I have plenty of challenges, but uh, quite honestly, we keep on talking about students and so on and so forth. But also as a professor, the world is changing in incredible pace, incredible pace. I mean, the amount of not only information, but the amount of knowledge the, 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 the broad discourse that we have to be aware of is one of my not only challenges, it's fear, Mustafa. I have to, to admit for you, I am on a daily basis, I suffer from this kind of fear that I need to read more, I need to see more, I need to travel more, I need to, 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 to talk with people more. And I think... Uh, if any professor is, is, not, is not willing to feel this fear, I would say this is a declaration of his or her end. I think uh, what is really unique about our time now is we have to stay on our toes as professors and educators and even practitioners to be aware of this uh, unprecedentedly growing discourse. Yeah, so it's like staying up to date with totally, all totally, with everything uh, totally, happening around us. Totally. What, what do you want people to tell about you or to read about you if when they Google your name in 100 years from now? Oh, yeah, 100 years from now. So like in the future, what will they 
read about you or say about you? Well, you know what, Mustafa? Uh, I would... I will be very, very happy wherever in heaven or wherever in after 100 years, if when people Google my name, they will come up with a conclusion that, well, it seems that this guy was more holistic in his approach to life. He was not a typical professor of architecture and urbanism that look at his domain from a very narrow perspective. He was more open to politics, to cultural discourse, to social issues, to economical issues, to uh, cultural debates. And hence, it is manifested in his writings, in his lectures, in his research, and so on and so forth. I, all what I'm trying to do in my life, Mustafa, is to go beyond the the, the straight jacket of you, our profession and to give an example that knowledge is holistic and, and to be able to contribute to this world, you need to understand the complexity of the world. Yeah. So do you believe that you're like changing the image of a professor? On my own limited capacity, I am definitely trying to do that. Two questions about something that you're really proud of could be anything like a project or activity you did or anything, anything. Well, I, I, I can share with you a couple of things, one on a personal level and one on, on achievement level. On a personal level, although this is also not typical in the Middle East, but none of my kids are architects, but I'm extremely proud of them. I have a daughter who just finished a master's degree in political science. She's wonderful. She's intellectual. And I'm so happy that I didn't pressure none of them to be an architect. I left it totally for them to select whatever they are passionate about, excited about, because this is the only way to excel. So I'm, I'm extremely proud of my daughter and also my son. He studied physics and mechanical engineering, and he's working in an airplane factory now. Whenever I talk to him, he's very sophisticated to the extent that I will tell him, excuse me, let's talk about football. I cannot handle your knowledge now. So this is no, on shout, personal shout, shout level. Out, shout uh, out to your kids and congratulations for the thank you, amazing sir. achievement. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of them. On, 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 on more professional and academic level, Mustafa, I wrote uh, a lot of books and a lot of research, but I am extremely proud of a book that I wrote about Maidan uh, al-Tahrir, al-Tahrir Square in Cairo. This is the square that witnessed the events of the 25th of January Revolution. And it's the only book written in Arabic narrating the story of the square, uh, the, the, the impact of the revolution on its architecture and urbanism, why the, the youth uh, selected the, 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 the square, and uh, why the, the, the contemporary situation of it ended up with this image of uh, a very fragmented square rather than what we hoped for, that this would be a role model for a public space where people can express their opinions and, and, and practice ceremonies, uh, express their anger, express their joy, and so on and so forth. So I'm really proud of this book as an achievement too. 
So interesting. How do you get like the ideas of writing so many different articles and then within different topics within your profession? Like, like you write so much. Yeah, how well, do you get the ideas right. and generate them? Right. Uh, I have a specific ritual that I think rituals also are very, very important in the sense that I have to write something on a daily basis, Mustafa. Daily? Even if it's on a daily basis, even if it's only two lines. But I trained myself at least for the last 20 years that on a daily basis, I have to write what I called it, Mustafa, the seed for something. The seed, as if it's okay. the seed that you throw on mm. uh, on the ground to have a tree or, or whatever. Yeah. And this seed, later I will subject it to cycles of development. And this cycle might end up with uh, a regular essay or maybe a scientific research or maybe a book. So, you know, but, 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 but the, the notion here is that how to subject yourself to a discipline by which you produce, you produce yeah. even a single tribal marginalized idea, but later you can work on it and develop it. Develop. So do you have like, how to say, a specific routine? Like you write your, your, your sentence in, a, in a, an application or, or a notebook? Then like, do you have, what is your process? Yeah, I, I, I like so much to write with, uh, with actual writing, but I also use my iPad a lot. And ironically, Mustafa, this is, uh, this is something for you to laugh. And thank you for the technology here. Sometimes when I, I'm, I'm, I'm driving my car, I have ideas, but I cannot write because I'm driving. So iPhone here is beautiful because of the voice <laughs> note. So I record something and uh, later I will work on it. Awesome. So you, you, you go back a lot and look at what you wrote for like one week or one month ago, exactly, one year ago. Exactly, exactly. And then you start to select from all of these seeds, which one you see now the potential, because you know, as if you write something and you leave it for a week or two, and then you look at it again with a fresh perspective and you start to evaluate it and you start to interact with it and you start also to judge it. Is this a good potential for a good piece of research, or maybe an essay in a newspaper, or maybe this is a fundamental issue that you need to work on it and transform it into a whole book. And like, because I know many, many of us passionate about, about uh, creating or, or, or delivering what they believe in and what they think about. So like in my case, I, I do it by sound, like this is a podcast. In your case, you're right. So what is like your advice to people who, who have so many ideas and interesting stories, but they are like afraid to tell it somehow? What is your, like, what is your recommendation for them to, to start? You know, to Mustafa, yeah. You know, Mustafa, um, I think this is so much related to learning languages. And uh, I, I noticed that a lot of people, when they start to learn a language, they are extremely shy for making mistakes. Right. So they would say that people would make fun of me that I'm pronouncing B or P or what have you or whatever. Uh, and and all the time I was telling people in such situations that you already speak a language and you're trying to speak a second language. You already by far more distinguished than a lot of people on Earth. So you have to be proud of the fact that, you know, Arabic and you are trying to know English. And I remember that I was attending a meeting here in Qatar 
and and this foreign director was making fun of how two Qatari young ladies were pronouncing uh, English words. And I stopped the meeting and I told him, how many languages do you speak? And he said, only English. And I said, oh, these guys by far superior than you because they can speak <laughs> Arabic fluently and also yeah. they can communicate in a wonderful manner in English. True. So let's focus on the, on the, on the meeting mm. and stop mm. talking about who can speak uh, whatever <laughs> word better than you. You know what I'm saying? And I would, yeah. I, I, why I use this example, Mustafa, because I think it's an excellent answer to your question. I would argue that for all those young people having different passion about creating, they want to write, they want to design new uh, uh, design statements, they want to design new pieces of furniture, they want to write essays, just do it. Speaking of Nike, just do it, <laughs> just do it and don't ever let anyone stop you. Write if you want to write, design experimental designs if you want to do that. And I think, Mustafa, this is the beauty of the social media. Just put your ideas on LinkedIn or ResearchGate or Facebook or what have you, and let, or YouTube or all, or podcast or what have you. And let people interact with it and judge it without any kind of prejudice. So my secret here, Mustafa, the, the secret recipe that I will deliver to our audience, particularly the young generation, don't ever be shy. You are already a distinguished person because you want to create something. You want to add something new to our world. Yeah. And I mean, like, look at you, you wrote an article on the newspaper and here you go. You're sitting in an advisory board. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and you changed like, the system, how, which is uh, amazing. Imagine how 700 yeah. words changed my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you, you, you need to write a book about the article. Like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. And what, is there something that you regret in your career? Something you did? And now after these, all these years, you're, you're, if you're looking back, you regret that you did it. Uh, I wouldn't say, uh, I, 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 would, uh, I would say regret as a word is, uh, is to me not the suitable word because I was not in a regret situation by definition. But I, would, I think my justification for that, Mustafa, is that from ve my very early years, I looked at life as a learning journey. It's an, it's an endless educational experience. So I never, if you would ask me, is your professional or academic story, it's a continuous success? No, it's a fluctuation, fluctuation of positive and negative, of success and failure. But if you look at this from an educational perspective, from charge it to the experience kind of approach, you will never use the word regret. So I never regret, but I learn a lot. I learn from my mistakes. I learn from my encounters. I learn from my diversified experience. I learn from my traveling and so on and so forth. It's a very interesting answer. And now I have a question. I, I want to pass it to you and I want an answer from you because I got it personally. Uh, there is an, a wonderful Urbanistica podcast listeners. She is in the US and she told me like, I'm a, she's like newly graduated. And she told me like, I'm, I'm so stressed because everyone around me uh, achieve, achieved already so much and they're still young. 
and they are doing so interesting projects. And now, like for me, I'm very stressed now, like how to start, where, where do I start and what should I do? So I'm a kind of lost. So, so what is your answer to this young, amazing listener? Well, number, number one, <clears throat> for your friend in the States, I will tell her, um, don't ever look at the quantitative approach of assessing people and evaluating people and evaluating your achievements. Maybe someone will write 20 books and none of them is valuable. None of them create any form of change or contributed to knowledge. One can design plenty, plenty of houses, but none of them is expressing the family spirit or was creative enough to be proud of. So I will tell her, don't occupy yourself with others. Don't occupy yourself with your colleagues and your peers and what they have done and what they have achieved. The most important thing for you is to search for your own passion. You want to be a researcher. You want to be a designer. You want to be a writer. You want to be a critic. You want to be a furniture design, a landscaper, urban designer, and what have you. And then try to come up with something you yourself will be proud of. This is my very first filter, Mustafa, that you, because you cannot lie on yourself, right? So you have to start by saying that I am proud of designing this house. I am proud of writing this piece. I am proud of designing this piece of furniture. I'm proud of conducting this piece of research. If you start from this approach, you will have satisfaction. You will have places for development. You will have a plan for the future rather than to occupy yourself with what is happening with others? Because all the time, this is negative. It eats you alive, literally. Like you put your energy on something not really valuable, like for it's you. It's not related to you. Like, it's not related Yeah, yeah, to you're you. not gaining. Maybe you're going to gain a bit of motivation. Okay, look at this amazing career. So let me also have an amazing career, but not like, not in the long run, right? Let, let me share with you a very interesting story regarding this, Mustafa, because I love tennis and I used to play tennis and so on and so forth. And I remember there was a, a wonderful American player. His name was Andrea Agassi. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, he was he was famous top. Name. He was number yeah. one. Yeah, and yeah. Then famous. he had uh, some uh, emotional problems and a lot of uh, yeah issues. Uh, and 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 his rank was declined all the way to one hundred thirty four, right? And then he went back to number one went back to number one on top of the world. And he was interviewed. And I love, I love the way he answered the question of how you were able to come back. And amazingly, Mustafa, his answer, and I think his answer is so relevant to your friend in the US, the younger, freshly graduate uh, architect. His answer was, instead of looking at what is happening in spot number one, who is occupying this spot, how much tournaments he or she uh, he is winning, I focused on one thing, how to be today better than yesterday. And I kept on doing that until I, re I came back to number one. Gradual improvement, gradual enhancement. And all of this gradual enhancement is focusing on you. Instead of being distracted with what a Beat Sampers is doing or what whoever Bjorn Borg is doing, 
he kept on focusing on how to be better today compared to yesterday and how to be better tomorrow compared to today. And, and you, you go into those kind of gradual progress and then you will reach your destination. True, true. I totally agree with you. Once I, I, I watch, I don't, to be honest, like this is my problem. I don't read books because I think it takes a lot of time. So I'm more like listener, a listener. So I listened like a, to a book. It's about like this 1% uh, gradually success. And the author is writing about that. Imagine if you do 1% every day, in the end of the year, you're not 100% developed yourself. You develop yourself like 365%, exactly, exactly. which is crazy. Exactly, exactly. This and is a wonderful like, analogy. How would you say? Excellent yeah, analogy. Like gradually becoming a better than yesterday. So you, you mentioned that you, you like to play tennis or watch tennis. What are your other hobbies? Do you have time for, for hobbies with all the writing? and uh, Writing, definitely. But I also, I, uh, I love photography. I do a lot of photography because photography for architects is like uh, you, 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 you capture also the spirit of places, right? And uh, so I love photography so much. And... Uh, Traveling also, I, I learn from traveling. I encounter people. I know about places. Uh, I know about food. And traveling is beautiful. I mean, I cannot imagine the world without the ability to explore places. And this is why I was telling you, virtuality is important, but actuality is by far more beautiful. <laughs> so, what kind what kind of uh, picture you make? Is it like uh, more of city buildings or nature landscape? Well. Uh, Actually, uh, I am not into nature and landscape, so I am more into a couple of uh, uh, categories in photography. Of course, uh, architecture and urban settings, but also people in intimate relation with parts of the city, like uh, how people use the sidewalks, for instance, how a person in a garden is sitting and reading a book. Uh, how a person is uh, uh, standing by the waterfront and fishing. I mean, those kind of small captures where I try to document the, the, the happiness of the city or the happiness of the place. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Have you, did you check like the Social Life uh, Project by Fred Kent? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like the same style, right? Like you're documenting the city life. Exactly, exactly. And do you do any sports now or? Yeah, or well, no? uh, now m mainly uh, swimming, swimming. And uh, I love swimming also because uh, tennis is kind of tough now, but uh, uh, swimming is, uh, is very nice to me. And also it's a, uh, these are the, tennis, your mind will be totally occupied during playing because you need 100% focus. Exactly. But walking and swimming are good sports to reflect and think. Mm -hmm. You can multitask, like doing the sport and, and thinking about something exactly, else. Exactly, exactly. You cannot afford to do that in tennis. It will be very tough. <laughs> tennis requires 100% focus. I can imagine. Yeah. By the way, like we talked in this episode, we talked about uh, FIFA. Do you watch football? Do you, do you enjoy watching football? Well, uh, to be very honest with you, I'm not that football kind of guy, but uh, I am very selective. Like, for instance, the Premier League in England. Yeah. Or the FIFA or the European European Games. Champions League, yeah. Because the level is, is really outstanding. And uh, I like it very much when the, uh, 
the 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 sport itself is so dynamic do you see the performance of people and also the festivity of uh, how people go and cheer for their teams and so on and so forth so this is so much manifested in the in the uh uh pre- premier league in england also in germany spain so i watch these kind of games interesting and like i'm going to record another episode but it's uh, with a football fan he used to travel just to watch football so it's gonna i'm gonna link it with your episode and it's gonna be interesting to see like about this topic from uh, like a, a visitor perspective so yeah, it's yeah. gonna be interesting and tell him please uh, he wants to be when coming to qatar he wants to be on the floating uh, accommodation or the <laughs> desert camp or in a hotel or in one of the families hosting him you'll have a lot of options yeah <laughs> before we move to the last section of this episode uh, i have a question how do you find a work life balance you do you do so many different activities on the different fields and different platforms so how do you find the work life balance yeah sure you know mustafa my philosophy in this was uh, i i all the time i talk about balance and it's important to balance between work and health and family and so on and so forth but uh, this notion was crystallized in my mind after an incident in a train i was in a train going from uh, london to oxford and uh, there was a wonderful wise old man sitting beside me and he told me where are you going and i said i'm going to oxford because i want to visit the university there and blah 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 and i start talking about i'm doing this and tomorrow i'll do that and after tomorrow i'll do that and i'm coming from that you know what i'm yeah. saying i'm trying <laughs> yeah. to brag that i am the most busy uh, <laughs> professor in the world <laughs> and this guy told me you know what uh, i want to share something with you and i said yeah please and he told me you know life is like set of drawers and sometimes we are under the impression that if we fill one of those drawers the overflow of this drawer will fill the rest of the drawers but this will never happen because each of those drawers is dedicated to a specific value in your life one is dedicated to work and professional life one is dedicated to your family one is dedicated to your health and so on and so forth so don't ever think that being an excellent professor would guarantee that you have a successful family or you have good health all the time make sure that you are balanced in taking care of your body and taking care of your mind and taking care of your family and taking care also of your profession and 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 academic life so although i was doing that mustafa but i was not able to see it as this beautiful metaphor that this wonderful man shared with me so this is my philosophy in life that i am not going to be incredibly successful in filling one of these drawers and leave the others empty all the time i'm trying to be very balanced in terms of my work my family my friends my health and so on how do, how do you do that on actual ground i would i would definitely go for time management and and because all the time and i think during covid we realized that mustafa we realized <laughs> that we pretend that we are busy 
and then suddenly we are sitting at home doing nothing. You know what I'm saying? So, so I think I think time management and knowing exactly what you want to do and enjoying what you want to do is the key for this. Very interesting. And now in the in the final uh, section of this episode, and it's gonna be about you giving messages. Uh, the first one is going to be that you give a message to yourself. Um, how to maintain being curious about life. How to maintain this uh, curiosity. Because curiosity is, uh, is motivating you to learn, motivating you to explore, motivating you to know about things and about life and about the uh, the, 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 the world that we are part of. So, because as I told you before, I look, I look at life as a, an educational journey, a knowledge, a knowledge journey. Uh, and hence, my advice to myself is to maintain this spirit, to maintain this kind of inner fire by which I will reach whatever age and I will still feel as a student. It's, uh, it's not easy, right? No, it's very difficult. I can imagine. Yeah. And also it's very difficult because sometimes part of your personality is telling you, enjoy that you are a professor. Enjoy yeah, that like, you wrote books. <laughs> enjoy that you are a scholar. Enjoy that students are sending you emails from all over the world. Right? But yeah, as you rightly said, it's very important to stay humble and to make sure that there are plenty of things and knowledge and issues in the world that you are not even aware of exactly like is this i think the trick here is like about you reminding yourself right like come on stay hungry stay hungry for knowledge Can't agree more can't agree more you're absolutely right amazing and the second question is about you giving me and the listeners three takeaway messages well um Number one, I think we talked about it and you supported me. You have to be passionate about what you're doing. Don't ever, don't ever subscribe in anything that is imposed on you. Don't ever subscribe to doing something that you're not enjoying. Uh, you know, there, there's this cliche that uh, if your hobby is your profession, this is the, the ultimate success. And, you know, all of us are saying that, but we're not doing that, right? So we should do that, particularly if we are people working in the domain of design and creativity. I mean, imagine that you are a designer and you feel that you're not enjoying what you're doing, right? So, so this is my very first takeaway. The second thing is that keep knowing about the rest of other disciplines related to our profession, architecture and urbanism. Because it's wonderful to have political understanding of what's happening in the world, social understanding, economical understanding, cultural understanding. And then my third point or my third takeaway, yes, I respect the new normal. Yes, I respect COVID-19, but for God's sake, keep on moving and keep on traveling and use any kind of opportunity. You know, Mustafa, I am not exaggerating. Sometimes... I used to work and gain specific amount of money and I will use all of this money for a trip. And I know that I will come back from the trip totally broke. But I took the jeopardy of doing that because I know that I'm gaining out of this. I'm learning out of this. 
So this is my third takeaway. Move and explore the world and travel as much as you can to many countries, as many as you can. Amazing. Now, now we should do like the high five because yeah, yeah. Of I'm course. doing the same with the, with the money. Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, you remind me. <laughs> it's like, but, but like in before the trip, you see like, this is investment, right? I'm going to gain this amazing experience. When you look, when you're back, like you see your wallet is empty and be like, oh. Yes, but as you rightly said, if you have the belief that what you have gained through the travel is also adding to your wealth. I mean, it's like redefining wealth, Mustafa, redefining yeah, money. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Redefining what you have in your wallet, you know, only $400 or knowing people, exploring places, going to new museums, discussing uh, new approaches to life. So if you consider all of this part of your wealth that would pay back later, then you're happy. Yeah, I'm joking with my friends about that. Like I tell them, like, I know the smells of cities, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. Like, like Venice smell. Yes. A smell has a Stockholm, Baghdad, yes. you know, and, yes. and, and so on. So it's of like, it's you are absolutely story. right. And the last question is going to be asked by you because during this episode, it's only me asking, asking, asking. So we finished this amazing episode by you asking me and the listeners a question. Well, um, asking you a question or for the audience. Okay. What is the main lesson that you have learned from the lockdown? because of COVID-19. I think this is, you don't have to answer this right now, Mustafa. Maybe in, in, in one more episode, we'll do that. Maybe we'll have a whole episode about lessons learned from COVID. I just, uh, I just uh, published the book by Qatar, Nash, uh, Qatar University Press called uh, Architecture, Urbanism and City in Post-COVID Paradigm. Uh, but I think, I think, either for you or for, audience, for the audience, Mustafa, we need to reflect because that was an unprecedented period in our life. We never witnessed a situation before that our governments all over the world are telling us, stay home for God's sake, don't move. So what exactly we have learned out of this? So this might be a good question that I will pose for you and for your respected uh, uh, audience. Thank you so much. Uh, very, very important question as well and i'm i'm very 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 grateful that you gave your valuable time to record this podcast i'm inspired by you I'm, i love what you produce all the content so i'm a huge fan of you and i hope that we're going to continue the conversation and we're going to record more episodes in the future well I, i i i first i have to thank you so much for what you're doing in in your postcard it's a It's a, it's incredible contribution, and I, I I like very much the diversified approach that you are adopting here. You have episodes by yourself. You are also inviting wonderful architects and designers with interesting point of views. You are also inviting academics and professors and and people who are creating different paradigms in teaching and and theories about uh, architecture and urbanism. So I need to thank you for that. And to be honest with you, I just realized that we were talking for two hours and 15 minutes, but I literally enjoyed every minute. So it will be, 
absolutely my honor to come back and have uh, one more episode for you. And hopefully it will be in Doha or Stockholm. Hopefully, hopefully. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful evening.